I want to talk with you today about Christian reflections on mental illness. Christian reflections on mental illness. Well, I'm, I'm glad that you're clapping because that's very encouraging for me. You don't have to do more. <laughs> but um, this is not an easy topic to grapple with. Uh, but we're so affected by it. There's so many people that are dealing with depression, with anxiety, bipolar disorder. Um, there are people, the suicide rates are higher than they've ever been. Uh, and sometimes, as, especially as Christians, it's very difficult to determine, am I just falling victim to the stress and the natural anxiety of the place that I live? Or is there something really wrong with me? And then how do I deal with either one? This is really murky water sometimes, but I'm trusting the Holy Spirit to give us a way through. And the focus of this is not necessarily to talk about sickness. Uh, it's not to talk about the weighty um, elements that go into this. It is to focus on the power of Jesus Christ and the power that comes from his people loving one another. We're going to find that that's a central issue that's going to go into understanding how to work through uh, these matters. So I'd like you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4, and while you're turning there, I just want to pray very quickly. Father, I'm asking that you would give us all the grace that we need uh, to get through this matter today. Lord, I'm praying that you would give us joy and gladness in our hearts at the power and the peace that you give that is able to transcend anything that we have to suffer with in this life. God, I pray that you would make us people of compassion. I'm praying that Times Square Church, Lord, the Manhattan campus, the Summit campus, the New Jersey campus, and soon the Bronx campus, oh God, Lord, would be places of absolute mercy, places of compassion and understanding, oh God, where no matter what burdens or bondages come through the doors, they will be met with unconditional love. They will be met with a love that's able to bring healing, a love that is able to bring stability, and is able to rescue people out of very very dark places that they're desperately searching for an exit in. Uh, God, we thank you for what you're able to give us today, and we look to you for it in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Again, Christian Reflections on Mental Illness, and I, I'm not trying to sound fancy with that title. It's because really, sometimes I feel like I know so little, I'm just going to give you some reflections that I've had on the matter, and hopefully they'll uh, prove helpful uh, in going forward. But Matthew chapter 4, we're just going to read two verses, uh, verses 23 and 24, uh, and we'll unpack that in just a few moments after I tell you another story. It says, And Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing all kinds of sicknesses and all kinds of disease among the people. Then his fame went throughout all Syria, and they brought to him all sick people who were afflicted with various diseases and torments, and those who were demon-possessed, epileptics, and paralytics, and he healed them. Thank God for that. You know, in 1848, a very interesting uh, event took place. It was a bad accident with a young man named Phineas Gage. He was 25 years old. He was very honest, very hardworking, very respectable young man, uh, and he was working with explosive powder. Uh, I believe it was on a mining project. And while he was preparing everything for detonation, everything detonated. And the iron rod that he was using, it was about 43 inches long, an inch and a quarter in diameter. It went through his cheekbone, into his brain, out the top of his skull, and landed about 30 feet away. Never lost consciousness. They took him to the doctor, and he very famously said, well, this is business enough for you. And they said that he was never the same after that accident. 
I mean, obviously, you, you would imagine he wouldn't be, but he was no longer Phineas Gage, his friends said. Uh, some people noted that the balance between his intellectual faculties and animal propensities seemed gone. He could not stick to plans. He uttered the grossest profanity and showed little deference for his fellows. So after a tragic accident, after a serious injury to his brain, the man's soul and personality seemed to be affected. Now that's very scary because what that does is it raises questions and it brings awareness to how little we actually understand about the way God has made us. Is it possible that something that happens to my brain could affect the condition of my soul or my personality or of who I actually am? What do we do with those things? I wasn't able to find anything about uh, this man's personal faith, if he was a Christian or not, uh, but it's been, it's been considered the birth of neuroscience as we know it today. How much does the brain govern with regard to the way that we are? Uh, can injuries and sicknesses in the brain alter us? Think of Alzheimer's and things of that sort. People begin to forget their loved ones. They forget where they are, who they are. These are very scary matters. Very scary matters, and it has to humble us, and it reminds us that there's very little that we understand about ourselves. We are not purely physical beings, beloved. Now, things like this have made some medical professionals draw the conclusion that we are only physical, and the brain can explain everything, but as a Bible-believing Christian, I can't accept that. We are body, soul, and spirit. There's a spiritual component to us, but how wrapped up those three things are with each other well, we don't know the answer to that. It seems that they're a lot more tightly knit than we might realize at times. And so it's because of things like that that I want to explore this issue a bit today. And the reason why I'm sharing this story, the reason why Phineas Gage bears relevance for what we're talking about today is going to lead us to our first point. If you'll direct your attention to the screen, we tend to fear what we don't understand. We tend to fear what we don't understand. The mind is mysterious. And actually, our, our following point, if we could bring that up, we don't know the line between the brain and the mind. We really don't. You could ask any doctor, any professional, we don't know the line between the brain and the mind. We don't know what consciousness is. We don't know what energy is. There is so much in God's world, in this universe that he's made, that we have very little understanding of. And the things that we don't understand, the things that we're uncertain about, we fear. And we're looking at a person, and this person's mind doesn't function properly. They seem to be gripped by intense anxiety. They can't differentiate between reality and a delusion. That's a very scary thing. And sometimes it will lead us to draw assumptions that perhaps this person has some kind of spiritual deficiency. Or maybe they're demon-possessed, and though there certainly is and can be a spiritual component to mental illness, we'll get to that in due course, that's not a good or right assumption to make in every case. There's a lot that we don't understand, and when we don't understand something, we do tend to fear it. We don't know the line between the brain and the mind. Next point, please. People who suffer in mind need all the care shown those who suffer in body. And this is really the heart of what I want to drive at today, that we as Christians need to have a response that's biblical and compassionate when people are dealing with these things. We have to show the same kind of care and compassion to those who suffer in the mind as we do to those who suffer in the body. Think about typical responses to a person saying, I, I, I went to the doctor this week and I, I've got cancer. 
oh my goodness, I'm so sorry. That's terrible. How, how did your family take the news? How, how did you take the news? Are, are you going to start chemo? Have they given you a prognosis? We're immediately very concerned about the person's well-being. But when somebody says, I have bipolar, oh, we get a little, my goodness, we're a little leery of the person because now it sounds more behavioral. You know, there's, there's no horror movies named Cancer Patient, but there are horror movies named Psycho. You know, I'm, I'm not even saying that to be cute, but really it's true. Hollywood has given us the most education, on, bad education on what it means to live with mental illness, what it means to have a problem in the mind. And people who really need a lot of compassion, people who need unconditional love, end up getting shamed by our contempt and our assumptions. And that's not an appropriate reaction on the part of the church. That's not the way we're meant to respond to people who are suffering with things they never asked for. Did, I mean, really, do we believe that, do we believe that people who suffer with delusions and schizoaffective disorder ask for that? Do we believe that people with bipolar or depression brought that upon themselves? Like they, they wanted it and they invited it. We have to think through these things and our responses can actually convey our assumptions and if we, I don't want people to ever think that I'm making assumptions about the kind of person they are or, or some deficiency in them spiritually because they tell me that they're struggling with something. If a person says, I have a certain mental disorder or an emotional disorder, I want to give them the same loving and compassionate response as I would give to a person who says, the doctor's diagnosed me with cancer, I've got six months to live. I want to show them the same response of concern and care. Oh my goodness, I'm so sorry to hear that. How can I help you? Is there anything that you need me to do? What are you doing to take care of yourself? Is your family okay? Do they need any kind of support? Instead of fear, we should give mercy. Instead of contempt, we should be given compassion. There's a lot that we don't understand about these things. And fear is never going to be the good reaction. It's going to be the least helpful response that we can give to people who are suffering with things that they never wanted. They're suffering with things that they never asked for. Humans are entirely sacred. Your body, your soul, and your spirit, and no matter which part of you is suffering, you need love to get through it. You need compassion to get through it. You need care if you're going to stand in the midst of it. And I don't know, I, I'm quite sure, even just statistically, there's maybe people in this room, quite sure there's people listening online today who are dealing with these things, whether in themselves or in a loved one. Look, you need to be loved. You need support. You need prayer. You need the arms of the church holding you up, not shaming you and making you feel like, I can't talk about this, I'll be judged. God forbid. Folks, that can't be the culture that we're creating within our four walls. That can't be the atmosphere. That's an atmosphere of shame. That makes people hide what's really going on. That makes people create walls around themselves that say, I, I, being vulnerable is the most dangerous thing I can do. But that's actually what brings the most healing is vulnerability. And if we have things that are out there like, no, you talk about this. If you suffer with this, clearly you're spiritually deficient and you just need to pray your way through. You're just not reading your Bible enough. That's not our response. That can't be the first reaction of the church of Jesus Christ. We cannot assume spiritual deficiency in people who are suffering from very real illnesses, whether they're physical or mental. Now, this is where I want to start unpacking the text that we read in Matthew chapter 4. And here's our next point. 
Matthew 4.24 distinguishes between mental illness and demon possession. Matthew 4.24 distinguishes between mental illness and demon possession. Now look, I need to be a teacher here for a few minutes. Because this is something that, look, if we don't know how to read into the original languages of the Bible and look at a lot of the cultural implications behind those languages and behind those terms, we're not going to catch it. And that's okay. We are separated from the Bible by 2,000 years of, of language difference, cultural difference, historical difference. And that's why God ordained pastors, teachers, apostles, and prophets to feed the flock and help them understand the word of God. And so I want to walk you through a few things so that you can see that even in the Bible, not all cases of mental illness, not all cases of disease, not all cases of epilepsy are regarded as the work of an evil spirit. And Matthew chapter 4 is very helpful in seeing that. Now look at that verse, verse 24. It says, Then his fame went throughout all Syria, and they brought to him all sick people who were afflicted with various diseases and torments. Now look, the, the primary point that Matthew is going to be making here is that no matter what people brought to Jesus, he was stronger than the problem. That's the main point. But we as 21st century readers, we want to look not just at the core, but even what's on the periphery, what's on the side of the verse. Can we examine every aspect of it and walk away with even more helpful information? And one of the things Matthew is doing here is he is listing different kinds of sicknesses, different kinds of afflictions that were brought to the feet of Jesus. He is not talking about one affliction in many different ways. He's speaking of different kinds of sickness, and no matter what it was, Jesus was strong enough to, to heal it and to cure it. And he says that they brought to him all who were afflicted with various diseases and torments. Now, right there, he's drawing his first distinction between the physical and what you could call the emotional. The diseases would be those physical sicknesses like leprosy, blindness, and things of that sort. The torments, this is a very interesting word that he uses. It's only used three times in the New Testament. And it has to do with torture. He says people who were sick and people who were under torture. There was something tormenting them on the inside. And then he lists what he means by that. He goes on to say demon possession, epilepsy, and paralysis. So these were not just physical diseases that people would be plagued with. These were emotional torments that took away a person's independence, took away their ability to function in life. And so these are very important lines that Matthew was drawing for us as modern readers so that we don't make wrong assumptions about people who actually need our help and our love. Now, next point, please. I want to start defining these things. Possession is when a person's body and will are under an evil spirit's control. And not every sickness in the New Testament is regarded as the result of demon possession or oppression. There is a strong difference drawn. Now, granted, there are cases of epilepsy and there are cases of even uh, muteness where a person cannot speak that are regarded as just you live in a fallen world and you're sick and Jesus heals them. But then there are cases also where the same symptoms are not just the result of living in a fallen world. They are the direct work of an evil spirit upon a person. But even then, Jesus casts it out and heals it. Now, we have to be honest with our Bible, and we have to be honest with ourselves. The Bible doesn't give us a list of criteria to say, this is how we know. What it does say, though, is that the writers and the crowds knew the difference. 
So it might be more obvious than we think. Now, that obvious nature will come out as we go through the rest of the notes. But for now, suffice it to say, when he references demon possession, he's speaking of people whose bodies and wills are under the control of an evil spirit. They don't have control of themselves. They are gripped by something else, and they cannot help their actions and their words. Now, just as a side note here, Christians cannot be demon-possessed. That needs to be ruled out of our thinking. Some well, I'm sure, well-intended teachers have said otherwise, but look, when a person is born again, they are inhabited by the Holy Spirit of God, and you become his temple, and he lives within you. Jesus said, if anyone believes in me, I and my Father will take up residence in him. And the temple of God can't be shared by an evil spirit. So it's not possible. It's not possible. Now, if I, I'll add to that just for the sake of clarity. When Jesus gave a teaching on demon possession, he gave what I call his strongman analogy. And he was accused of casting out demons by demonic power. And he said, no, if a strongman abides in his house, his goods are secure. The only way you can take his goods is if you're stronger than him and you bind him up. And so he was basically saying the reason why I'm setting people free from their spiritual strongmen, their demons, is because I'm stronger than the demons. Now flip that. Flip that. You get born again. The Holy Spirit lives inside of you. Who is your new spiritual strongman? So look, find a demon strong enough to bind the Holy Ghost, and then you can tell me Christians can be possessed. Until then, it, it's, not a, it's not possible. This is not possible. Now you get that for free. Anyway. Uh, next point, please. Epileptic or lunatic is a separate category and a different Greek word. Epileptic or lunatic is a separate category and a different Greek word. Now, your English translations will most likely have one of three things. Uh, after demon possessed, it will either say epileptic. If you're reading the King James, it will say lunatic. And some other modern translations say those having epilepsy or those having seizures. And those are good translations of a single Greek word. And it literally means to be moonstruck. To be moonstruck. In, in Greek, it's sen, uh, seleniezomai, and it comes from selene, meaning moon. And our English word lunatic is actually the closest translation to that. Lunatic and lunacy come from the word lunar, meaning moon. So there's this connected idea between the word that Matthew is using and the word that we use to describe insanity, a loss of mental control. And it was based on a superstition that the phases of the moon had something to do with the condition of the mind. Now, there's no reason to believe that Matthew thought that was true. He is simply using a word because that's the word that you use to describe a certain condition. So we don't need to think that he was superstitious as an author or as a Christian. That's certainly not the case. He goes on to say, Jesus healed it. So we know where his faith lies. But nonetheless, he is noting that people who experienced epilepsy, people who experienced lunacy, uh, are not in the same category as those under the control of a demonic spirit. And a lot of Greek scholars will have written in their commentaries and in their, their Bible dictionaries that the word used here does refer commonly to epilepsy, but it most likely had a much broader meaning than that and spoke of things that afflict the mind. And this is where I would suggest in the strongest terms, Matthew is showing us very clearly that even in scripture, there is a distinction between a person who is under the control and grip of an evil spirit and a person who is simply sick and needs our care and our compassion, and our love. 
There's a distinction between the two. And we ought not to assume that just because a person is depressed or if a person is bipolar or if a person is, is experiencing hallucinations, oh, they must be demon-possessed. I don't think that that's right for us to assume in every case. Now, next point, please. Matthew's point is that Jesus is stronger than every infirmity we encounter. His point is that Jesus is stronger than every infirmity we encounter. I'm bringing out this distinction because I want to help us get above our assumptions. Because sometimes a lot of Christians have been hurt by the assumptions we make, the wrong assumptions we make about mental illness. I can't tell you how many times I've met with people either over the phone, in my office, or in the hospital, in the psychiatric ward of the hospital, and they are under such immense shame. They feel like they have failed God by being sick. And look, brothers and sisters, I say this with all the love I can muster, I can't help but feel like we've created that. And I have to evaluate myself. Have I created that? Lord, I don't ever want to create this notion where people think that because I'm suffering a certain kind of way, I must be spiritually deficient. God must hate me. I, there must be something wrong with me. I must not be believing enough. I, now, look, don't get me wrong. There are serious kinds of spiritual oppression that a person can come under when they're believing lies of the enemy instead of the truth of God. Now, I'm putting that in a separate category. That's something we cover all the time from this pulpit, and I'm very glad to say that. I'm glad to say there is no shortage of truth coming forth from here. I want to deal very specifically with people who can actually be medically diagnosed with some imbalance, some abnormality in their brain that is affecting their ability to have a normal life. That does not deserve stigma. That deserves mercy. People like that don't need gossip and assumption and bad reputation. They need care. They need love. They don't need bad assumptions. Now again, in the scripture, you find these clear distinctions where this is distinct from something that's the work of a demon, but then you do find areas in the New Testament where it is the direct work of a demonic spirit. But the Bible always differentiates between the two, and that means we also must do that. We have to differentiate between the two. Uh, next point, please. Mental illness is not necessarily the result of sin or demonic influence. It is not necessarily the result of sin or demonic influence. I'm going to run through these. Next point, please. Like any illness, it results from living in a fallen world. Like any illness, it results from living in a fallen world. It is because of sin that people get sick. It's because of sin that we have poverty. It's because of sin that we have demon possession. It's because of sin. Look, everything goes back to sin. It is because we have rejected God and his value system. That is why suffering and evil exist. No matter what form they come in. Don't ever make the mistake of missing the fundamental problem. Next point, please. And we're going to dwell on this one. The two biggest causes may be trauma and genetic predisposition. The two biggest causes may be trauma and genetic predisposition. I do appreciate the fact that people are, this is resonating. Now listen, I have to be clear here. I am not a medical professional. I have friends that are. I have had very helpful conversations with them. I've done a lot of reading and research on this. So, but you are free to take this with a grain of salt. My expertise is in expositing the scripture. That's where I'm on solid ground. This, I'm leaning on the, the knowledge of others to make this point. But I did hear an example from one clinical psychologist that I found extremely helpful. Um, he said that with, when it comes to understanding how mental illness can develop within people, imagine a balloon. 
that's been blown up to its very limit. If you take that and you press it enough, the balloon's going to blow out at its weakest point. And you have people who might have genetic predispositions where there's a family history or something of the sort. They might be predisposed to experiencing depression or anxiety or something of the sort. Uh, They might be predisposed to bipolar or some other kind of condition. And basically what happens is their lives get so complicated, their lives get so painful that they have a mental blowout at their weakest point. And really, what that tells me is that, my goodness, people who, people who are hurting are in many cases just being shamed out of feeling like they can come to the church for help. So if this is true, if this is in fact correct, these are not people who just are dangerously ill and, and need to be kept at arm's length. These are hurting people. These are our, if they're, if they're born again, these are our brothers and sisters in Christ. God forbid that we make them feel like, well, you're just not praying enough. You're just not reading enough. If you would just have your devotions, you would, you would get over that. I, I don't, I can't advocate that kind of a mentality at all. There are people who have read and prayed until they were purple in the face. And for whatever reason, they, for reasons they can't understand, they, they're stuck with something they never, they never asked for. Now, this is what I think does happen. If we'll bring up the next point, please. Satan exploits people's greatest vulnerabilities to afflict them. Satan exploits people's greatest vulnerabilities to afflict them. Now, I owe that one to Pastor Will, Pastor William Carroll from this church. And he's still one of our our beloved faculty members out at the school there. We actually, I'm bringing you a bit of what we did together at a, 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 we call it our theology night. We have them twice a year at the school with the students. And we'll we'll just have an open forum discussion about a particular topic. And uh, just last month, we had an open forum night about dealing with mental health and mental illness. What's a biblical response? How do you pastorally counsel people who are in this kind of a state? Uh, And this was something he brought out that I said, my goodness, this makes so much sense. I I still remember talking to a young lady one time that I I know from a long time ago, and she called me randomly out of the blue, uh, and I was very surprised to get her phone call, and I I said, hey, how are you? And she was barely coherent, and, you know, she started telling me about how she's been hearing voices telling her that she attacked the Virgin Mary, and, you know, she's a bride of the devil, and, you know, because of that, God can never accept her, and she's hearing these voices ram on her mind every day, just pounding her and pounding her. And my heart is just breaking as I'm listening to her talk. And, and she said, I want God to love me, but I, I don't know if he can forgive me for doing this to his mom. And it's like, when you hear someone who is so trapped in that kind of a sickness where they, they cannot differentiate between what's real and what's a delusion. I mean, that should not make us fearful. That should break our hearts in two. That should make us hit our knees and cry out, oh God, would you touch them the way that you touch people in the New Testament? Lord, we need the same kind of miracle working power that that Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John wrote about. We need you to do that again today. We need that. And I, I just stayed on the phone with her. And I, I just talked with her and I, and I asked her, I said, you know, do you believe in Jesus as your Lord and Savior? Do you, do you love him? Do you want to walk with him? I mean, I'm throwing the kitchen sink at her. Like everything you could do to evaluate a, a person's salvation, I'm asking these questions. And, and she's like, no, I, I really do. I believe in God. I believe in Jesus. I, I know he's the only one that can save me. But because I, I did these things or these voices say I did these things, I don't know if he will save me. And so you could hear her going back and forth between these two, one reality and, 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 and one delusion in her mind. And I, and I blurted out and, you know, I, I say this 
I mean, I feel bold just saying this, but I told her, listen, I think you're saved. I don't think your sickness, this sickness that you never asked for, I don't think that is the power to make Jesus let go of you. I don't believe that for a moment. And I told her, I said, listen, you're one of the bravest people I know because you're having to leap over hurdles every day in life. You're having to go through treatment and therapy and having medications thrown at you that the normal Christian doesn't have to deal with. And yet you're still wanting to cling to Jesus with all of your heart. And I'm at the place where I can't, I can't look at people like that. I can't talk with people like that and just write them off as, well, you're spiritually deficient. You must have a demon. I just, I can't go there anymore. I don't think it's true. I don't believe that it's true whatsoever. I don't think it's biblical. There might be cases. There might absolutely be cases where people have a sickness that is bound up with the work of an evil spirit, but not every case. And if we meet a believer, a person who is showing fruit of the spirit, who has made a positive, true, verifiable confession of faith in Jesus Christ, you do not write them off, beloved. That's your brother. That's your sister. You hold them up. You take them by the hand and say, I'm going to walk with you through this. We're going to believe God for a miracle, but we're going to take care of you in the meantime. While we're waiting for a miracle, while we're believing God to touch you miraculously, I want to help you take care of yourself while we're waiting. We would do the same thing with a person who was diagnosed with cancer or some other illness. We would do the same thing. And so when someone comes to me in the church and says, I got diagnosed with such and such. All right, we're going to pray. We're going to anoint you with oil. Like scripture says, we're going to believe God. But look, if, if the miracle doesn't come right away, please don't just sit and deteriorate. Please take care of yourself. It's not a lack of faith to seek out help. It's not a lack of faith to seek out treatment. Take care of yourself while you wait. Why should I say that? Why should I give that kind of compassion to one person, but withhold it from another because I'm superstitious or I've got bad assumptions about it? We need to be consistent. People need care. And what the enemy wants to do is he wants to work through our greatest vulnerabilities. My mother was sick with systemic lupus for a long, long time. She was not supposed to live to C40. She was not supposed to see me graduate from high school. God miraculously touched her. The disease is, there's no sign of it. She's a grandmother now. And uh, praise God for that. But I remember when she was sick, when she was sick, my mom's a tough lady. She's the toughest there is. When she couldn't walk anymore, it didn't bother her. It didn't bother her that she needed an electric wheelchair to get around. It didn't bother her that her hair fell out because of the chemo and that she had to get a wig. It didn't bother her that, you know, the, the medicine had a lot of adverse effects. She gained a lot of weight. She didn't look like herself anymore. It aged her, you know, two, two decades beyond her actual age and where she was. What bothered her, what really hurt her, what really messed with her was when she couldn't pack my lunch for school anymore. That's what hurt her because that's what the devil does. He uses our greatest vulnerabilities and he exploits them to torment us. My mother had a physical disease and he knew how to hit her soul with what her body was suffering. And when people are suffering in the mind, he does the exact same thing. You know, I remember hearing from a, a doctor who attends this church An actual, I don't remember if she's a psychologist or psychiatrist, but she is a mental health professional who said the majority of, of cases that involve delusion are very religious in nature. It's someone believing they're, they are God or they're hearing from God and things of that sort. I'm not surprised actually. And I do think that in a lot of ways, the devil has his hand in that because he just wants to sow deception. Oh, they're weak over here. They're suffering mentally. We're going to use that to torment them. 
We're going to use that to keep them in bondage. We're going to use that to keep them in darkness and, and distance them from the truth. It doesn't mean they're possessed. It means they're tormented. That's how Matthew describes it. These are tormented people and they deserve our compassion, not our contempt. They need our love, not our fear and our assumptions. That's how we've got to respond to these things. These are tormented people. And that's how evil the devil is, that he will exploit our greatest vulnerabilities so he can torment and afflict us. Next point, please. Helping people deal with mental illness takes compassion, not contempt. Helping people deal with mental illness takes compassion, not contempt. Next point. People need to be empowered to take care of themselves. If all we do is shame people, and make them feel as though they are spiritually deficient or they're not doing this enough or doing that enough, they're going to attach that shame to taking care of themselves physically. They're going to attach that shame to going to see a doctor. They're going to attach that shame to talking about how they're feeling. They're going to attach that shame to words like therapy or medication. And they're just going to deteriorate while they think, oh my goodness, I, this is just proof I'm deficient. God must reject me. I must not have enough faith because I just keep getting worse and worse and worse. And we, we can't do that. People need to be empowered to take care of themselves. I, let me pause here for just another moment before we continue with the, the points on the screen. You know, medication for mental illness is so difficult. There are so many adverse side effects attached to a lot of what's out there today. I had one sister in the Lord. She's also a licensed counselor. She said it can take a long time to find the right combination of meds. And listen, I am not, I don't think anybody should be swift to go in any particular direction. So I'm not up here championing a particular avenue of care. I just want to point something out for all of us to know. When people do elect to take that route, they can end up feeling like another person. The, the, the pill that makes them feel or makes their family think they can have a normal life makes them feel like a zombie. It can change their metabolism. They start gain, I can't, I've heard people tell me, like, I stopped taking my meds because I, I gained so much weight when I was on it. Because that's disheartening. So this is the price of having a normal life? This is the price of getting to feel like a regular person? These are people who need unconditional love and the support of the body of Christ. They need to be empowered, not distanced, they need to be told, hey, you hang in there. We're with you. You're not alone. We love you. You do whatever it takes. We're going to pray with you. We're going to believe God with you. You, you hang in there. You, we're going to encourage you. We're going to build you up. But if all we do is hand out fear and assumption, that's the least helpful thing we can do. Next point, please. People need to be empowered to take care of their loved ones. Perhaps by a show of hands. You know, this is always sensitive, and there, I, I hope there's only compassion coming out of me here. By a show of hands, how many of, in, how many of you in this room have a friend or a loved one who struggles with this, and it, it's a challenge? You, you know someone that's directly affected. Look at how many hands are going up. So many people in the church are touched by this, touched by these, really, these very real afflictions, these very real infirmities. And look, if you're taking care of someone and you're helping someone in your family or in your circle of friends that deals with this stuff, look, God bless you. Thank you for not abandoning them. Thank you for not writing them off. The Lord is pleased with you because you're representing him. Because there's nothing more Christ-like than refusing to let go of people. There is nothing more gospel-centered than refusing to let people go. There is nothing more Christ-like than that. Thank you, and God bless you. 
People need to be empowered, not just to take care of themselves, but to take care of others. Last point, people need to be empowered by a praying church. People need to be empowered by a praying church. I want to tell you something. If you're here today and you struggle with a mental illness of some kind, you're allowed to bring that down here at three o'clock when the elders are anointing people with oil. Your need is just as important as anybody else's. You deserve the prayers of the saints just as much as anybody else. We should cry out to God for the miraculous, for people who are struggling with anxiety and depression and bipolar. You name it. You name it. We should be crying out. I've been teaching so much on the Holy Spirit at the school and at our church because I've just been desperate. I've been desperate just running into people who are, who are just plagued by things that they never asked for and they can't get themselves out of. God, we need your power. Lord, we need your power. We need your strength. If anybody in this room believes in miracles, it's me. If anyone's willing to cry out for healing for people who are afflicted with this stuff, it's me. And I want to do that today. But at the same time, I want to encourage people, look, we're going to believe God for the miraculous, but you take care of yourself while we wait. There is no shame in you doing that. There is no shame in you doing that. And we can't shame people for doing that. People need to be empowered by the prayers of the church. They need to be empowered by brotherly love being expressed through the family of God. Cry out to him for the miraculous. But we've got to love each other while we're waiting for the miracle to come. We've got to care for one another. We've got to encourage people to care for themselves while we're waiting. Those are the reflections that I had to offer you on this. I believe that a lot of people who have just felt shame over this are just in such need of compassion and in such need of mercy and care and I just hope that this afternoon contributes to helping correct that problem. I'm hoping that maybe people who have felt shame feel validated today. That you're not just some spiritually deficient person. You're a child of God. If you're a born again believer in Jesus Christ, no sickness has the power to undo that. No sickness has the power to do that. The enemy might use it to torment you. The enemy, the enemy might use it to afflict you, but you're a loved member of the body of Christ. There's a lot that we don't understand there's so much that we don't understand, but we've got to rise above our fear. We can't let our fear stop us from loving people. We can't let our fear stifle our compassion. Amen? Amen. Let's stand together. We're going to worship the Lord in song for a few moments, and I just want to give an invitation, a twofold invitation. And look, we're not... We are not going to try to create some high volume atmosphere in here to get everybody really excited and worked up. We simply need an atmosphere of faith. That's all we need. But I want to pray for two things. I want to pray, number one, for people who are suffering with a mental illness of any kind. You, you deal with depression. You deal with anxiety. You are bipolar. You, you struggle with hallucinations or delusions, and you want God to set you free. I want to pray for your healing today. And if you're here today and you have been affected by these things and you're just so disheartened and you're discouraged and it's been so heavy trying to love people through it, take care of your loved one, take care of your friend and, and you want to represent them. You even want to cry out to God for their healing. You want to cry out on their behalf. You're welcome to come down here too. I, I just want to stand with people who are hurting. I just want to stand with people who need a, a loving touch from God today and I want to pray with you. And I want to believe with you for the miraculous. I want to believe with you for strength. God loves you. And if Jesus is not ashamed of you, then I'm not either. If Jesus isn't ashamed of your struggle, then neither am I. And no one in this room should be.
Lord, I thank you for these precious people, Lord, my brothers and sisters in Christ who have come down to this altar, God, in response to the truth of your word. And Lord, I thank you for those people in Matthew 4.24. We don't know their names. It simply says, they brought to him all who were suffering with various diseases and torments, and you healed them. Lord, I pray, first of all, that you would make Times Square Church every campus, God. Lord, we want to be a church that brings people to Jesus, no matter what's tormenting them. We don't ever want to be a church that keeps people from you, that shames people into hiding, that shames people out of vulnerability. God, we want to be a church that empowers people to bring all of their baggage, to bring all of their suffering, all of their torment to you, because we know that you are the great healer. You're the great physician. And Lord, my brothers and sisters here have brought, Lord God, their suffering. They've brought their torment, whether they're doing it for themselves or they're doing it on behalf of a loved one, a family or a friend. And God, we know, we know who you are, Lord. God, I'm asking in the name of Jesus that depression would lift. God, I'm asking that anxiety would cease. I'm asking that panic attacks would be no more. I'm asking in the mighty, holy, all-powerful name of Jesus that every kind of fear and paranoia, every kind of delusion would stop in the mighty name of Jesus Christ. I rebuke every delusion, every deception of Satan where he is using our weakness, where he is exploiting our vulnerability to torment us. Satan, you are a liar. You are a liar. You were a murderer from the beginning and we rebuke you in the name of the Lord. You do not have any power over the church of Jesus Christ. You do not have any power over the children of God. You have no right to use their weakness to torment them and change their identity and confuse them over who they are. We rebuke you, you liar. We rebuke you, you murderer. Jesus, you have told us who you are, Lord, that you are the great physician. Lord, thank you that you looked for the sick. You looked, oh God, for those who were trapped in illness, oh Lord. You never turned them away. And God, if we have ever, Lord, if anyone at this altar has ever felt ashamed, oh Jesus, if anyone at this altar has ever felt ashamed, Lord God, for needing help in this sensitive area, if they have ever felt like they have failed you, oh God, or they have felt like they were spiritually deficient because they've suffered in this way. God, I pray that you would lift that, Lord God, that you would heal that in the name of Jesus, that you would dispel the condemnation, that you would dispel the shame, oh Lord. They are blood-bought, adopted, and accepted children of God. They are sons and daughters of the King. If any man, if any man, if any woman is in Christ, they are a new creation. All things have passed away. Our suffering doesn't change that. No amount of suffering, whether it's physical, circumstantial, mental, or emotional, can change the fact that we cannot be separated from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus our Lord. Oh Lord, we acknowledge your word told us that in this life we would have tribulation, but none of that tribulation can separate us from you. None of that difficulty can change who we are. No struggle, oh God, no struggle against physical illness, no struggle with demonic attack, no struggle with mental disorder can change the fact that blood-bought means blood-bought, saved means saved, born again means born again. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. 
Thank you, Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord God Almighty. Father, I pray that you would speak now in a way deeper than any of my words were able to go today. Lord, I pray that you would bring comfort. I pray that you would bring clarity. I pray that you would destroy every lie of the enemy that's been sown into every mind of this altar. God, I pray that you would bring healing in the name of Jesus. Bring physical healing, oh God. Lord, I pray that we would hear marvelous testimonies of miraculous healings and deliverances even over the next few days, Lord Jesus Christ. Oh God, let this church flood with testimonies. God, I even, Lord, before I, I finish, Lord, I, I just ask, oh God, Lord, that you would restore. Lord, restore us as a church, Lord Jesus. We want to see the gift of healing flow again, Lord God. Father, we, we humble ourselves before you, Lord. God, we, we don't know how much depends on our faith, how much depends on your power. Lord, you said that all we need is a mustard seed. That's all we need, oh God. And Lord, sometimes that's, what I feel, that's all I feel that I have. But God, I'm praying that you would give us the gift of healing again, Lord, in this church, that when we lay hands on the sick, Lord, whether they are sick in body or sick in mind, Lord, that you would answer our cry and that your spirit would move through us and that you would heal, Lord, miraculously. You're still the same God. You have not changed You've not changed, Lord. And God, I'm, God, in my heart, I'm just desperate to see people helped, Lord. I'm desperate to see people brought out of where they are. So God, I'm asking that for the sake of your great name, Lord, out of your compassion for people, your love for people, that you would be stirred and, and let that gift flow through us again. And I pray that you'd begin at this altar, Lord God. And I ask all these things in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen and amen. God bless you. God bless you.